are put together to make bands of missionaries called a church. What does a missionary church look like? What does a sent church look like? You know, at Legacy, we do believe that all Christians are called to be missionaries. We believe this because of what happens in John 20. is Jesus says, just as I am sent, so I am sending you. But when you look at how Jesus was sent, he was sent on mission. He was on a mission, and he didn't come empty. I mean, he didn't come empty of a message. He had something rattling around in his lungs. It was a story. It was a gospel. He had things to bring. We, in his image are also on mission, just like Christ. And us too, as we enter the fray, we enter with a message, not empty-handed. We don't come vacant. So it's important. It's important to us. That's how we want to build. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. We believe that. And we're building on the foundation of that. Everything we do, we base off the fact and the understanding that all of us as Christians are missionaries. Think about it. I mean, we, we, that's how we've determined to build this church. When we started Legacy Church in Knoxville, it wasn't to be a church plant. There are good church plants in town. We wanted to be a church planting church plant. We wanted to be a church plant that would start new communities, new churches, new campuses, here, elsewhere. We wanted to be a, a church that started new families, new groups, new endeavors, We wanted to do that because we believe that the fastest, most efficient way to reach a broken culture is by starting new, breathing, vital works. Because, listen, no one is going to come here and listen to me preach because they just can't get enough of me, right? No one is is waking up from a drunken stupor right now and going, you know what I need right now? I need me some Luke Thomas preaching. I'm going to hop in the car and speed to West High School because I can't get enough. That's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. There's no way there's some group somewhere, some person somewhere in Knoxville that just cannot get enough of our production, you know? As good as our team is, and as cool as our animal skin screen is over there, as much as we try, no one is going to come. No one is going to come that is deep in their sin just because of how things look and feel and sound. So as missionaries, it's upon us to carry it to them carry it to them. That's why it's important, right? We did not come here to build something that would just have such a massive gravitational pull that people just can't help but get sucked into what we're doing here. Usually when churches plant or start a new campus or a bunch of new missional communities or move across town, especially to a place much different than it just came, it's always a very good moment in time to revisit who we are as a missionary church and who you are as a missionary that makes it up. That's why we're doing this. So today I want to talk about the missionary as an evangelist. What does a missionary look like as an evangelist? I'm not going to talk about techniques today. I'm not going to talk about strategies today. Because listen, the church does not fail evangelically because of its bad strategies, and it has a lot of them. The church does not fail in its evangelism today because its strategies and its techniques are even awful. It's because of the heart of the evangelist, and that's what I'd like to look at a little bit today. It's important, the message that we carry. We're couriers. I mean, you hear me say the word carry all the time because we're couriers of a message, a beautiful one. Couriers in a time of war, nonetheless. This message we carry, this gospel story, it's huge. It's a story of grace, brokenness, and redemption, 
and adventure and fight and passion and death and sacrifice and resurrection and new life and building. It's this great, huge, majestic, overarching story about a God who is going to recover his cosmos, that's going to redeem what is broken because of Adam's sin. And we get to carry that. We carry that in us to a people who desperately need to hear it. It's a huge, important endeavor, but there is an enemy of your souls. There's an enemy that does not want that message to get broadcast ever. And he'll do anything to snuff it out. He'll make you lazy. He'll make you scared. He'll make you anything. I mean, strike the messenger, you kill the message. And that's how the enemy has always worked. That's what he tried to do with Jesus. If I could just kill that messenger, the message stops. You know, I was working out with my son this week, and I was telling him about what we see in history, World War II, really most world wars or big wars between World War II, so World War I-ish and back, especially in the ancient world, when a general or an army would want to transmit a message from A to B, they wouldn't really use horses a lot of times because of the topography and the landscape was real jagged and irregular. It was too difficult and not very fast for horses to move the message. So what they'd do is they'd use human runners. Human runners could carry a message 70 to 80 miles a day back then, especially in the ancient world. The Greeks were the best at this, right? They could carry a message. I mean, that's, that's a lot of miles in one day for a person to carry. But you could count on them, right? Pheidippides is one of these runners. Some of you probably recognize the name. If you don't, you'll recognize the setting of his life. Pheidippides allegedly, mythically, was the one that ran from the plains of Marathon all the way to Athens to announce, rejoice, for we have victory, for we have won. Because you see, the Greeks had just defeated the Persians, at least on land. And he needed to carry the message back to Athens to let them know, you don't have to be in fear, we have won. Because the Persians were mowing everybody down. So you know the people in Athens were kind of on pins and needles wondering what was going to happen. Pheidippides comes around the corner, exhausted, collapses, triumphantly says, rejoice for we have won, and then he dies right on the spot. (laughs) And that distance between the plain of Marathon and Athens, 24.8 miles, was what became the Marathon. And later on they redefined the distance to 26.2 miles. But then, when bullets started coming, and not arrows, they started digging trenches and putting soldiers in those because of the bullets, you still had runners darting from trench to trench, from front to front, carrying an important message. Now these guys, at the time, especially in World War I, it's historically noted that one of the most dangerous wartime occupations was a message courier, a runner. Because they don't don't carry a big 15-pound rifle to stop and draw self-cover and to draw a beat on the enemy. They're just running. They're, they're slimmed down. They need to run. They're an athlete. They've got a message, whether they've memorized it. A lot of times they did, whether they're carrying it, and they bolt. And a lot of them would get shot. They always got awards and accommodations for uh, bravery and, and just being a courageous soldier. And they understood the message I carry in me is more valuable than my life because it could save 10 lives, 100 lives. A thousand lives. If I get plinked running from here to there, it's more important. You know, a little bit of history, not really important to any of this. Adolf Hitler was actually a, a runner in World War I. He was shot twice. He had a lot of awards for that. 
You know, what makes the courier such a dangerous occupation was the value of the message that they carried. That's what I'd like to look at a little bit. I'm building a metaphor for you, but it's a little bit more than a metaphor. You see, we use the word evangelist a lot. We throw it around. It's only in the New Testament about three times. But we use it as part of our common vernacular. And it actually comes from a Greek word that kind of sounds and looks a lot like evangelist. It's unique in that way. But the thing is, is when you trace the word evangelist in the Bible back to its closest mate in the Hebrew Whenever you're able to do that, it nuances a very important meaning. You see, an evangelist would show up at three times, mainly, when things needed to be announced. First of all, and remind you, let me remind you, this is all before Jesus. This is before Jesus. An evangelist would be a person that would announce the birth of a new king and a new reign. The publisher of good tidings, of glad news. An evangelist would also be a person that would come and announce an abundant harvest for this year's crops. You see how important these are? I mean, isn't that interesting? The third is a runner carrying a message of victory for a people hungrily waiting in a time of war. That's what the word evangelist nuances. So I'd like to turn it on its head for you a little bit because I think we see things differently because of the way we grew up maybe. I think we're confused, but... Even before Jesus came around, had somebody said Pheidippides was a very good evangelist, everyone would have agreed. Of course he was. They don't see it the same way you and I see it today. An evangelist is simply a carrier, a publisher of very good, provocative news. An evangelist is someone who brings and vocalizes and proclaims glad tidings for those who need to hear it. It's very simple. I think somewhere in our past we've gotten it mixed up. And when someone says the word evangelist, we think Billy Graham, right? Or some black and white reel of some sweaty guy at a crusade preaching, you know, and droves of people coming. And we think that is the evangelist. Or we think an evangelist is maybe an itinerant preacher that kind of goes from church to church because he's kind of irrelevant and wide-eyed and doesn't have a lot of friends. But whenever he preaches, people get saved. And so we have these weird misunderstandings of what an evangelist is. So it's very easy for us to say, you know what? I'm not an evangelist, I'm just a normal person. I'm just a normal person. But here's the thing, you're not very normal. You're not normal at all. If you're a Christian, listen, if you're a Christian in here today, this is what this means for you. You are every single day being made to look more like Jesus, day after day after day. You're being perfected, grown, molded to look more like Jesus. Who was a missionary? You're a missionary, and you're coming with a message. You're an evangelist, so you're very far from normal. Very, very far from normal. But Luke, I've never prayed with someone to receive Jesus, so I can't be an evangelist. Listen, praying with someone to call call Jesus king in their life, praying with someone to do that, that is not necessarily the role of an evangelist. That's the role of God. That's what God does. God is the one that does the main work that causes someone to cry out and call him king. All we do is we carry a message. We are sent to carry a message. It's the message maker and the message that do all the work. Not us. It's not your style. 
that's doing all the work. No one got radically saved ever in human history because someone had a lot of style and strategy in how they preached the gospel. God is the one that went in and changed that heart out and did all the work. It's important that we know this. It's not you. It's God. Now listen, there is a there is a gift of evangelism. And there's a role of an evangelist in the Bible. Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, and God gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. So this is a real thing, right? But listen, we're all to do the work of an evangelist. These people that are called to be an evangelist, these people that God's gift is on to be an evangelist, I only know a few, but maybe you've met them too. Maybe you've seen them. They're the person that walks in, whether it's a guy or a girl, and whenever they preach the gospel, people just radically get saved around them. They don't preach it better than you. They don't preach it different. It's just people radically get saved. Sometimes you are around people that are gifted in evangelism, and they preach the gospel all the time and do a good job, and nobody gets saved. Nobody gets saved, and they can still be a gifted evangelist. Maybe some of you know this person, the one that God's gift is very heavy on, and they can communicate clearly. So when sin, the cross, the depth of grace, works not being in the picture, all of that. Romans 10 says this, Romans 10, 17. says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is an important passage, and this really goes with what I'm trying to say, that the power behind the message isn't you, but it's in the one who began the message. Faith to believe in the gospel comes from hearing, hearing God's call on your life, and you hear that call of God on your life through the words of Jesus Christ. It also says in Romans 1, 6, earlier in that same book, Paul says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, why am I beating this drum so much that it's not you? that it's God doing the work. Because I feel like some of you might feel condemned because you preach the gospel or you try to evangelize and you see no fruit. You might not be seeing any fruit. And I think there's probably two good reasons for that. One of them, it might be you. You might not be understandable. You might not do a very good job. You might not be fluent in the gospel language. Listen, it's a language like any other. And if you weren't fluent in English, people wouldn't understand you very much. They wouldn't understand you in any country where you're trying to speak their language but yet not be so fluent. What do you sound like? Are you just hammering one part of the gospel? Are you able to address sin? Are you able to address grace? What kind of picture are you painting? Some of you, maybe you're just sowing seeds. Maybe you do preach a very good, understandable gospel, but you're just sowing seeds. You're not watering them. You know, I think a lot of people really do feel a condemnation as an evangelist because of this. And let me just explain this. This Paul actually dealt with this. Now, it was a little bit of a different context. But when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, this is what he says. He says, what then is Apollos? This is in chapter 3, verse 5. What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. See, this is what's going on. God has assigned roles to Paul and Apollos. Those Those are things that they're carrying out that he has ordained them to do. He says, I planted... Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. You need to get some freedom in that. 
You might preach the gospel as an evangelist and be a faithful evangelist your whole life and never see anyone ball, break down in tears and get radically saved and then you get to baptize them. You might not ever see that and you could still be considered a faithful evangelist. I think in our minds we think we're only a good evangelist if people are radically getting saved. Nope, those are the people that are watering that God is giving the growth right before your eyes. You can thank God for that. That's not your mad skills, right? So that we can go ahead and do away with the condemnation, but understand what faithfulness in evangelism truly looks like. It just means carrying the message, being honorable to the one who sent it, to the people he's sending it to. That's such a great message, too. I've been reflecting on the gospel, one aspect of it in particular, this last week or two. And I think one of the, the parts of the gospel that I find to be the most powerful is, is our inability to save ourselves. The fact that Jesus Christ has won a victory and just handed it to us. And we were very inactive in it. We just kind of watched it. He just did it all for us. And we don't have time to go into the story. I'd like to, but it'd take way, way too long. But if you can recall in your mind the story of David and Goliath, where you have this Israelite army all huddled together, but day after day after day, they're watching Goliath come out and challenge them, mock them, scare them, put fear in their hearts. Day after day after day, they just shook. And then one day, David comes, and he, he, didn't, he looked insufficient as an answer. We can say that. As the guy, the remedy, he looked a little inadequate. And so what did they do? They mocked him. And they laughed at him. And they ridiculed him. And they shamed him. And then he went out and he won. He beat Goliath. And it didn't mean look like he spent a whole lot of energy doing it, by the way. He beat Goliath. Goliath collapsed. They rout the army. Now guess what happened that night? That Israelite army, that same one's rejoicing probably at a banquet. There's laughter. There's excitement in the air. And it was all because they didn't do anything. They didn't lift the sword. They didn't lift the shield. They didn't lift the stone. David went out and procured and got the victory for them and handed it to them on a silver platter. Here's your victory. You know why that message is so important to us? Why that part of the Bible is so pivotal? This is why that's in the Bible. Because we have a better David. Jesus himself went out and he appearing, I mean, just by everyone's appearance, it didn't look like he was the answer. He didn't look like the guy. He didn't look like a remedy. So we mocked him, and we ridiculed him, and we shamed him, and then we hung him on a cross. And he didn't just beat a giant. He didn't just beat an obnoxious soldier. He defeated sin, and he defeated death itself. And he did all of this while we watched. And we don't lift a hand. We don't perform for it. He just hands us the victory on a silver platter. He is the better David who beat a better giant. So I look at this, and it amazes me. It amazes me this grace that would come to us, even though we don't deserve it, even though we deserve the opposite. Now, Tim Keller, he talks about this point a lot, and he says, listen, the good news for you, and I'm paraphrasing him, look, the good news, the good message for you is not that you go and amass a perfect record, hand it to God, and he saves you. That's not good news. The good news, the good news for you and the good news for me is that Jesus went out and amassed a perfect record. We believe in him and he gives us the record. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message for us. 
We get this gospel of grace in the very face of our best attempts to get it and secure it ourselves. So when we bring this gospel to others, the root word behind evangelize is gospeler. We become gospelers. We bring the gospel to bear on those who are saved. We bring the gospel to bear on those who are lost because it is the same message. Listen, when I was dead and lost spiritually, just totally separate and very far from God, I needed to hear a gospel that said that my works will not get me what my heart wants, but Jesus Christ and his victory handed to me gives me salvation. Guess what? I still need that same sermon today. I still need it today. When I try to use things like identity or the church or my family to give me the things and I try to perform for God and I try to curb the right rules and toe the right line so God likes me more, I still need that same gospel. So we gospel those in the culture and we gospel those in community. It's incredibly important. That's actually a better understanding of evangelism, not a duty to crusade. So in this, we look like Jesus, who was our first gospeler. He was our first messenger, courier, evangelist. Jesus is the first evangelist. He's very unique, too, because he didn't just bring the message. He was the message. He didn't just bring the gospel. He is God's gospel, right? And we see this beautiful walk that Jesus did as an evangelist where he didn't just proclaim from his mouth as a proclaimer. He demonstrated it with his life as a demonstrator. He had both. He didn't just proclaim. He demonstrated. We need this. We need to see it. The question I want to ask, and I know we haven't even touched the text yet. That's by design. I want to ask the question, how does a global church, not just here, a global church of couriers and evangelists and heralds, how do we just cease to speak provocative news? How does that happen exactly? I mean, what is really behind the silence Why do we just stop being provocative with our speech? And why does any time anyone bring up the word evangelism, half the room just goes cold with condemnation? I know that happened. As soon as I brought it up, half of you immediately thought, ah, I need to get better at that. Here we go. Here we go. It's going to have to read me the riot act on why I'd be a better evangelist. Why does that happen? Why does that happen to us? I want to look at 1 John. 1 John 2, where you had your your place in your Bible, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, this might seem like a really odd place to jump in and talk about evangelism. But John does something really unique here in the Bible. He pits against each other a love for the world and a love for his Father. He juxtaposes them in one passage. Right? Now when he says not to love the world, he's not talking about not loving the people or serving it or praying for it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the world values system. The way the world and the culture values things. The framework through which culture looks at and applies worth. He's like, that is against the way or against loving the Father. Those are against each other. And he actually gives us an example of what it looks like in verse 16. He says, whenever we desire the flesh or have desires of the flesh and eyes and the pride and the boasting of life and what we have and what we do, 
All of that opposes God. But see, this is our problem, is we actually do want and desire and find lovely the things of the world and the world system. And our heart really does want those things. If our heart didn't desire and want the values of a worldly culture, then we wouldn't chase after them. And we wouldn't indulge and we wouldn't let them inform our decisions. But we do. And it's because the fallen nature in us, it desires what the fallen world has to produce. Right? The world's way of looking at what is important, the world's way of looking at what is preeminent, it's very attractive to our hearts. And so we'll devote our hearts in that direction. And just like Woody Allen would always say, the human heart wants what the human heart wants. And that is very true for us. So whenever we find this happening, whenever we as Christians see in our life that we're prizing things higher than Christ, we usually respond in one of two ways. Typically, not always. We usually try to use reason and logic to defeat sin, or we will use rules to defeat sin. One of those two things. Neither one of them work, by the way. I'll preface this with that. We'll use reason and logic by saying, you know what? It's illogical, this sin. It doesn't make sense. Just using my reason, this doesn't make sense. I don't need that anymore. And we'll try to reason. We'll tell ourselves that the world system is corrupt and that this whole love of the world thing is a sham and it's just going to hurt us. But the fact is, is we don't use our reason and logic whenever we chase sin in the world system, do we? We don't even use our reason and logic to do that. We use our heart and our instinct. Listen, you can try all you want, but whenever your heart really wants something, friend, your intellect's not going to contend with that. Ask Solomon. That's why smart people sin. <laughs> I mean, if it was all about reason and logic, we'd just get smarter, right? We'd just blow up up here and we'd stop sinning. That's just not the way it works. You know, you just cannot outsmart it. You cannot outlogic it. Sin is a matter of misplaced affections. It's where our affections are not squared off the way they need to be, and logic will fail us. And so will rules, by the way, which is the second way that we do it, you know? Listen, people sin all the time, and they know it's wrong. No one robs a bank and was confused that that was against the law, right? Think about adultery. Adultery is a great example. Where does that make sense logically? It's the dumbest thing in the world, logically. By reason, adultery is just totally stupid. I mean, to trade 50, 60-year marriage, 40-year marriage for what? A few, a few moments of fleeting pleasure? To, to look your spouse in the face and tell them what you've done eventually, which will happen? To do that? To see your marriage crack apart and your kids crying and everything just totally coming down around itself? <laughs> Logically, that's, that's just not worth it. It's not a good trade. And you could even set up cute little rules to guard you from that. But guess what? When your heart wants it, I mean, adultery's happened. It's proof. But John actually shows us a better route here. And it's implicit in verse 15, the beginning of this text. And it's where he shows the relationship between loving God and loving the world. And he basically says it this way. To love God is to not love the world. And to love the world is basically to not love God. That's how it works. Tim Chester talks about this a little bit and he, on this passage, and he says this, The only effective way to resist the gravitational pull of the world upon us is by means of a force that is even stronger. The more we love God, the less we will love the world. Very simple. In other words, the only way we will not love 
the world, or to the degree that we don't love the world, is to the degree that we will love God. That's how they work. And it's important because some of you cannot figure out why you keep going back to the same sin over and over and over again. Some of you cannot figure out why you keep getting trapped in the same sin repeatedly for years on end. And let me tell you, it's not a logic problem, friend. It's not. Your problem is not a rule problem either. Go ahead and find you some new rules. Read another book. Whatever you want. You can slap them on there. You're still going to sin. It's neither one of those things. It's a love thing. It's a love problem. You simply have not replaced your love for the world with a love for God, and so the world will always win in that. So, what does this have to do with evangelism? (laughs) It's true that just as much as failure to love God will lead us to fail in all different areas, failing to love God first and preeminently will cause us to fail as a messenger. We become very poor messengers. I mean, a good evangelist is someone who loves God, right? Someone who is in love with God. Because then we speak in, of the gospel in terms of love. I mean, remember, we're submitting to people a better lover, a better object of our love. That's largely the river that runs behind the gospel. This is what Chester goes on to say. He says, we can only do well as a messenger when we are a lover of God, someone whose heart has been captured by God in all of his captivating glory, someone whose heart has been ravished by Christ in all of his stunning beauty, and someone who has looked at the cross and has been won by the Savior at a deep emotional cost, a deep emotional level. And it's true. Think about it. Think about it for a minute. So you're there. You're an Athenian, and you're waiting. You've been waiting for days. And you know that army's been fighting, and you've not heard anything. And you don't know whether to pack your bags and to blow out of Dodge or to go ahead and put your roots in and rejoice because you're going to live another day. And all of your normal will be back again. Imagine you being that person. And then as you wait, Pheidippides comes running around the corner. And he comes and he collapses and someone brings him water. And he gets and he's trying to catch his breath because he just ran 24.8 miles. And he stands up and he says, okay, hold on a second. Let me think about it. Yeah, okay, rejoice. Wait a minute. No, no, I had it right. Rejoice. Yes, because I think the victory is ours. (laughs) You'd be like, wait a minute, what do I do right now? Should I be packing? Should I be excited? You don't look excited. This is good news. Are we cool? Try it again. Say it again. What did you want to tell us? And they try it again. And Well, did you not understand the message? Does it not capture your heart? Why aren't you conveying it? It's not difficult for us, folks. This is why many of us struggle in being a gospeler. We're just simply not convinced. We're not convinced that the gospel is really that good. Our hearts aren't captured by grace. And we affix our hearts to other things that the world swears will pay off. And the world does that. The world's value system, it promises you, it promises you that it will actually meet your needs and satisfy you. The world's value system will promise you that it will make you comfortable and secure and give you an identity and peace and value. And man, it always underdelivers. It won't do it. It tries to be a little Jesus. And the value system will always fail. So what you need is a realigned affection. That's what you need. To be a better evangelist, listen, to be a better missionary, 
to be a better son or daughter of the king. You need a realigned affection. You need what the Puritans would call an expulsive affection, which we've talked about before. An expulsive affection simply meaning that when God becomes the most dominant affection you have, it floods all other affections out. Whenever your affection for God takes center stage, nothing else contends. You are one, you are ruined by that one single affection. Listen, whenever that happens, evangelism just becomes talking about what you love. Very, very simple. Take all of the strategy out. Take all of the cute techniques and all the books written about it. If you just flat out talk to people about what you love, people will want to know more. They will respond. You will sow. You will water. You will be a faithful evangelist. The person that preached the gospel to me whenever I became a Christian that night, I'm pretty sure gumped it up. When I look back on it and I try to recall the message, it left a lot of things out. It didn't sound good. He stuttered too. It didn't sound totally right. He was practicing it even a little bit. And I got radically saved. Because God did all the work. And all this guy did was talk to the best of his ability on what captured his heart. So I'm finishing right now. And I want to talk to two groups Real quickly, I want to talk to those of you who are very close to Christ and would call yourself a Christian and those of you who would find yourself a little further away from Christ and maybe you're not sure even. Maybe you're not a Christian and maybe you're not sure. You know, if you are a Christian and evangelism has always been something that you've been getting around to getting around to, if you know what I mean, it's always kind of off in the distance. It's one of those things that you know you need to improve on, but you'll get to it when you get to it. I'd like to submit to you that we can't shut up about the things we love already. We can't quit talking about the things we love. It's always on the brain. It's always in the mouth. We can't shut up about the things that captured our hearts. So you're probably not a bad evangelist because you don't know enough. And you're probably not a bad evangelist because you're nervous. You might just have a deep fracture in your love for Christ and something else might be sitting on the throne of your heart. Very simply. Very simply. I mean, you might love other stuff more than the story of our Creator King so that that story, that message that we carry in our lungs as a courier slips off into the white noise of our life, which happens. So listen, this sermon is not about you getting better at evangelism so God likes you more. It's not. It's not. It's just simply a diagnosis to see where you're silent and why you're silent. Jesus has already died for your silence and for your apathy. He's already done it. He's already died. He's taken the punishment for our inaction just as much as our faulty action. So this condemnation that creeps up on you, Christian, whenever I talk to you about something like this, whenever someone preaches on this, that condemnation that creeps up on you is unwarranted. It's unnecessary. Jesus has already taken the fullness of that. The cup has been dumped. All wrath has been emptied to the very last drop. But now if you feel conviction, if you feel conviction, don't let it be because you're not a very good preacher of the gospel. Let it be because something else has grabbed the center of your heart. Let that be what convicts you. Let that be what you respond to. That something else has been central and core and has captured your heart so that God's glory has been siphoned off to the side. And you still, you evangelize the things you love. It just has nothing to do with God or his glory. That's what we need to repent from. That's what I need to repent from. 
And then some of you who are far from Christ, I would like to just say that Jesus is the better runner, and he does bring a better message. Whenever he says rejoice for the victory has been won, that's good news for us, friend. That's really good news for us. That's a victory that's being handed to you that you couldn't have won for yourself. That's a victory handed to you that you can't perform to earn later on. That's a victory just handed to you because of God's grace and the fact that he loves you so much. It's important. So now most pastors here will tell you to turn from your sin. That's what most pastors say. And I I agree. Turn from your sin. That's how Jesus becomes king to you and not just a dude, not just a teacher, a good speaker in the Bible that you're not quite sure. That's when he becomes king is when you turn from your own reign and dominion and you turn to him and you call him king and you live within his dominion. That's true. But I'm not just going to tell you to turn from your sin. I'm also going to tell you to turn from the things that are good in your life that you've made ultimate in your life. Because there's some really good things, aren't there? Family's good. My wife, our husbands, our, our friendships, our church, our job. These are all good things, but they're not ultimate. They're not ultimate. So it's not just about turning away from your sin. It's about restructuring what your affection is poured towards. And listen, when God becomes the fullness of your affection, it redefines all affections. Those things that you can't live without, it starts to be replaced by a king that you can't live without. And that's what salvation begins to look like as it takes effect and runs its course. Okay? That's what I'm shopping to you right now. As an evangelist, that's what I'm trying to carry to you right now. So like to pray for you guys. Go ahead and stand up. We're going to pray, and the team's going to come forward. And I know Kevin probably already brought this up and mentioned this earlier, but this is a time in the service where we worship together, and we have an opportunity to respond through singing. We have communion in the back. That's something we do as a church, that we celebrate God's visual gospel before us in the sacraments of a broken body and spilt blood. So take that with a friend. Take it with your family. Take it with a roommate with your wife, take it however you want to, even in your communities, your missional communities, it'd be a great time to do that as well. And then we're going to have people standing in the back. I'll be in the back for a little while. We'll have a couple other people standing in the back. Chase will be in the back. Go ahead and raise your hand, Chase. There's Chase. He'll be in the back. Garrett's already in the back. Garrett, raise your hand. These will be people that you could walk up and talk to, including me. If you want to talk to someone about